Welcome to the Holistic Psychiatry Podcast. I'm Courtney Snyder, a functional medicine physician and holistic child and adult psychiatrist. In this episode, I'll be discussing what I would say is the root cause to suicide. When someone dies by suicide, the cultural story focuses on an emotionally stressful event. Today, I'm going to be telling another story, one that involves inflammation of the brain. Just as the joints and other parts of the body can be inflamed, so can the brain. It is likely that when someone takes their life, they've already had a degree of chronic brain inflammation before the emotional trigger takes it to another level. Here I'll discuss the evolving research into brain inflammation and suicide. Separately, I'll be discussing how from a functional medicine standpoint I address inflammation and how I address and treat what is causing it in the first place. And though my focus will not be on psychiatric medications, I do recommend medications when they can save someone's life, alleviate significant suffering, or even help someone get to a level of functioning so that they can address the deeper root causes. I'd like to start with first mentioning terminology. I, like many people, have mindlessly used the term committed suicide And if you look up the definition of committed, it actually means to carry out or perpetrate, usually a mistake, crime, or immoral act. So as you can see, blaming people for having suicidal thoughts or acting on them is not what any of us want to be doing, which is why, which is essentially what this type of language does. In the scientific literature, you will instead see the phrase completed suicide, And to me, even this suggests a volition and intention that I don't necessarily think is typically there when someone has brain inflammation that is impacting their thoughts, their feelings, and their behavior. So an alternative is to say that someone died by suicide. So just to put all of this in a bigger perspective, I'm going to go through a few statistics Globally, 800 to 900,000 people die each year to suicide. Each day in the U.S., 132 people will die by suicide. And this comes from a statistic in 2018. Suicide is the leading cause of death among young people, 15 to 29 years old. And the prevalence of suicide has steadily increased in this country in the last 12 years in large part because of this increase in younger people. It is still unknown what the impact of COVID-19 will have on this, not only because of isolation, fear, financial stress, but also potentially the virus being a source of inflammation in the body and thus impacting the brain. In the month of June of this year, one in four people aged 18 to 24 seriously contemplated suicide, and this is according to research from the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. So risk factors for dying by suicide from a conventional perspective would include things like um, having a psychiatric diagnosis. So 90% of those who have died by suicide are diagnosed with some form of psychiatric illness. And that might be major depressive disorder, bipolar disorder, substance abuse disorder. Um, Much of what I'm going to be talking about today would apply to depression, which has also been shown to be linked to brain inflammation. So this is why treatment of suicidal thoughts 
would typically be treating the primary uh, psychiatric diagnosis. So if someone is depressed, the typical treatment would involve, um, and these would be obviously in addition to psychotherapy recommendations, but the treatment would likely involve antidepressant medication. If someone has bipolar disorder, then possibly a mood stabilizer, or if someone can't tolerate antidepressants, or even if someone has psychotic symptoms, an antipsychotic medication might be considered. So again, a psychiatric illness would be a risk factor. Another risk factor would be someone having a history of impulsivity, aggression, or hopelessness. So males do have a higher rate of dying by suicide, even though they have a lower rate of suicide attempts. And this seems to be due to that relationship between um, impulsivity and aggression, which is more common in males, um, and again, raises a higher risk of dying by suicide. A history of physical or sexual abuse or parental neglect are significantly associated with suicide risk, and this is seemingly related to how abuse and trauma impact stress hormone pathways, which I'll talk about later and, and explain how um, stress hormone pathways then impact inflammation. Having family history of suicide is a risk factor, and not surprisingly, as families can share a genetic vulnerability, but also they can share environmental factors. Um, for example, um, in an environment, in one family, people might learn to deal with feelings a certain way. There might be shared um, conflict or shared um, interpersonal dynamics. But I would also add, from a functional medicine perspective, that another shared environmental issue could be uh, toxicity. For example, if everyone's um, sharing a similar home with um, water damage, mold toxicity could be impacting multiple members. Another risk factor from a conventional standpoint would be substance abuse. However, those who do have substance abuse are often diagnosed with other psychiatric disorders as well. And since my goal is really to bring attention to the seeming role of inflammation in suicide, I'll add what I would see as some other um, researched risk factors. And these would include um, several epidemiologic studies that have shown a link between suicide allergies and asthma. There is a two- to three-fold increased rate of suicide in those with asthma. And again, asthma is inflammation of the lungs. Allergies is inflammation involving the upper respiratory system. It's also known that spring is a peak season for suicides around the world. And though research hasn't pinned down exactly why, certainly allergy, and I would argue high histamine levels, which is part of an inflammatory response, is part of the problem here. Undermethylation is a very common biochemical imbalance that impacts most people with brain-related symptoms. And if you're undermethylated, that impacts your ability to break down histamine. And so individuals who are undermethylated will struggle more with the consequences of inflammation, including brain-related symptoms. And there has been research into autoimmune disorders, including multiple sclerosis and lupus, as well as celiac disease. And it has been found that 40% of those with lupus and MS develop depression, and there are high rates of suicide. An association 
with exceedingly low vitamin D levels has been found in those who have died by suicide. And we know that vitamin D is does have anti-inflammatory effects. I suspect if studied, many would also have low zinc, low B6, and low magnesium. Traumatic brain injury has been studied, and we know that this will cause neuroinflammation and what's called glial activation. Glial cells are part of the immune system in the brain, and these effects can be quite long-lasting. There is a higher rate of suicide in those with traumatic brain injury and a higher level of certain inflammatory mediators. And this is something that I'm going to be talking about. Inflammatory mediators are things that you can measure either in the blood or in the cerebral spinal fluid um, that are markers for inflammation. And a last researched area that would be another risk factor that connects inflammation and suicide would be an infection by the parasite Toxoplasma gondii, which causes a significant risk, according to the research. And it's important from my perspective because this shows where conventional medicine is coming upon the idea that having a chronic low-grade infection may be impacting the brain. The initial infection can be like having the flu or having no symptoms, but after this infection evolves and starts to affect the brain, neuroinflammation can occur. Many of us in the functional medicine world, however, would argue that there are a number of ways low-grade infections can be impacting people who are walking around with brain inflammation, and that would include things like mold toxicity, mold colonization, Bartonella, which can be from cat scratches. Uh, certain viruses like CMV could also um, contribute to a chronic inflammation. And now with the introduction of COVID-19 as an increasingly common pathogen, it's unclear how that may be, even in someone who has no respiratory symptoms and no flu-like symptoms, how they may have a chronic source of inflammation that could start to impact brain health. Those of us in the functional medicine world would also argue that things like toxins, be it from mold, metals, or what have you, can also trigger inflammation. And basically, if you think of inflammation as being the body recognizing that something's there that shouldn't be, be it a toxin or a microbe, that it then starts to react as a way to fight off whatever that is, and in doing so causes some destruction to cells and tissues, and that can include the brain. So how does chronic stress or even a highly stressful event relate to inflammation? It is known that when we're under stress, a hormone called corticotropin-releasing hormone is released from the brain. The main goal of this hormone and this being released is to tell the adrenal glands to make more cortisol. So this is fine until we're under too much stress, either emotionally or physically. And if this stress is chronic or if it's due to trauma, or it's a problem if we have a, re a weak cortisol response, then there can be too much corticotropin-releasing hormone. And again, that's not a problem, except that corticotropin-releasing hormone also will 
bind to immune cells. Uh, there's ma- cells in the body called mast cells, which are really one of the main immune cells in the body, and they have receptors for this hormone on them. So when c- CRH binds to the mast cells, it causes the mast cells essentially to destabilize and release histamine and other inflammatory mediators, which then go on to send messages that will cause inflammation. So for one person, this could be um, when under a stressful event, they might break out in hives. For someone else, it could be fainting. And for others, this could be brain, inf- brain effects, including maybe falling asleep. Someone else, it could be a panic attack. Someone else, it could be suicidal thinking. Someone else, it could be rage. So often when I see people who have waves of despair, they are often having some physical symptoms of inflammation as well that they didn't necessarily associate. And this isn't always the case, but it is often the case. So without getting too deep into the science, and I I will include references for anyone who wants to learn more about the science, but there is growing research into the specific inflammatory mediators that are increased in those individuals with suicidal thoughts or those who even have died by suicide. And the way these are measured is through blood or through cerebral spinal fluid, so basically fluid from the covering the spine and, um, and brain. And if someone has died, then brain tissue. When mast cells are releasing these mediators, there's... There's many, many mediators that can be released. And the specific cytokines will do a number of things. And one of the things that cytokines will do is activate the immune cells in the brain. And these are called microglial cells. And what this can look like is an increased number and change in the form of these cells. So research has shown what is called micro gliosis in the brains of those who have died by suicide, and they do not find this in the same way in those who have died from other causes. Cytokines can also activate enzymes that start certain pathways, and there is one in particular that will impact the NMDA receptor, which is getting a lot of attention right now because of um, ketamine and how it can impact that receptor. But basically, NMDA receptors uh, plays a prominent role in many brain-related disorders. Cytokines can also change neurotransmitter metabolism, specifically of serotonin. It, they can increase permeability between the, at the blood-brain barrier. So if you think about our brain is relatively protected from the rest of our body, Um, And with the exception of that, blood vessels. And so if there's permeability there, then things potentially could travel from the blood um, into the brain. So that might be, that raises the possibility of toxins or even in some cases, microbes. And lastly, cytokines or these inflammatory mediators can impact stress hormone pathways. And all this explains why when people are having brain-related symptoms, it's really this complicated interplay between the central nervous system, the immune system, and the endocrine system. So in conventional psychiatry, 
they're, they are starting to catch up to this understanding about brain inflammation. And in time, what will likely happen is that medications will be developed and, and are currently being researched that will lower brain inflammation and be a treatment for depression and then obviously for avoiding um, suicide. And these would be medications um, not unlike anti-inflammatory medications used in rheumatology. And while this is certainly getting closer to the root, there are a number of strategies that we already use in functional medicine that lower inflammation, which I'll talk about. But separately important is that just lowering inflammation doesn't necessarily get to the root of what is causing the inflammation to begin with. So I'll be talking about that as well. How do we identify and then treat sources of inflammation? And then lastly, in terms of conventional psychiatry, none of what I'm going to be talking about negates the benefits of current psychiatric medications. As I said earlier, they are the current standard of treatment in treating depression, in treating bipolar disorder and psychiatric illnesses, and thus preventing suicide. And so I would never have someone with severe symptoms suggest that they just needed to address inflammation and not seek um, what is the current standard as far as psychiatric medications. It's just not the area that I'm focusing on in the type of work that I do. And certainly someone can be seeing a psychiatrist who specializes in psychopharmacology while at the same time addressing these underlying root causes. In functional medicine, we have many tools that we use to lower inflammation. One of the most powerful tools I've found is strategies to stabilize mast cells so that they're not releasing the cytokines or those inflammatory mediators that are stirring up so much trouble in the first place. There are certain supplements that can do this, and there's some prescription medications that are also mast cell stabilizers. Another approach is to block histamine receptors, since histamine can have a big impact on neurotransmitter functioning and, again, is something else that's released from the mast cells. And this could be basically an antihistamine. So though we typically think about them for upper respiratory symptoms, they actually can have an impact on uh, brain-related symptoms as well. Another approach, obviously, is to lower the acute emotional stress response. For example, if someone has a history of trauma, interventions that address what we would call limbic system dysfunction. So the limbic system is part of the brain that helps us recognize danger. And when someone's had trauma or had uh, toxicity, they may have limbic system dysfunction where their uh, central nervous system is on high alert for danger. And then, again, there's an interaction with the central nervous system and the immune system. So EMDR is a good example of a treatment that would address a limbic system dysfunction that may be from trauma. If someone has limbic system that's from toxicity or from trauma, there's a program called DNRS, or the Dynamic Neural Retraining System, that can be very effective. And basically... The, what this program does is help exercise neurologic pathways that would be beneficial and decrease 
thought patterns and pathways that are triggering that stress hormone response and thus inflammation. And so, as you can see, there would be a lot of ways that, and a lot of interventions that someone could do to lower stress. Even strategies such as yoga or meditation uh, would potentially lower the acute stress response. But by far, the most important way to address inflammation is to get to the sources of inflammation. And first, you have to identify what those sources are. So through a good history, you can identify if early childhood adversity or trauma could be impacting this acute stress response. Through a good history, it's not difficult to know if someone is undermethylated and thus may be more prone to inflammation. And undermethylation is something that can be addressed using specific nutrients um, that not only help with lowering inflammation, but also help with neurotransmitter functioning. Through a good history and timeline, it's not difficult to identify potential issues like exposure to water damage and thus mold toxicity. It's not difficult to identify the onset of symptoms in relation to someone having a virus or a tick bite, um, such as might be the case with Lyme, Bartonella, which could be acquired through cat scratches. It doesn't have to be one of those. It could be accumulation of other sources of inflammation that could be contributing. It will be interesting to know how many problems COVID-19 is causing under the radar. The deaths from COVID-19 have been and due to an exaggerated immune response that is triggered in some people. And I would argue that those individuals likely already had some immune dysregulation. The delay in the inflammatory syndrome that is being seen in some children does suggest that COVID-19 can, without causing any evidence of symptoms, cause um, inflammation at a later date. And this would be consistent with what we might see with um, things like Lyme or mold or certain viruses. Knowing a history of antibiotic exposure is also important in that it will make clear how vulnerable someone is to what we call dysbiosis or an imbalance in microbes in the GI tract. Problems like candida or yeast overgrowth can occur when someone's been on a lot of antibiotics. And since yeast makes its own toxins, it can be another source of, of toxicity. Knowing if someone is having immune reactivity to certain foods or other exposures can be helpful. Knowing if someone has had head trauma or even whiplash is helpful. Again, because these could lead to uh, inflammation. So this list isn't comprehensive, but more to give you an idea of things that I might be thinking about. And usually it's not just one factor, it's usually an alignment of factors that will be collectively contributing to brain inflammation. Specific testing can include specific nutrient levels, for example, zinc, copper, vitamin D, a whole blood histamine, which tells us about methylation. There's urine testing that can be done for mold toxicity and for metal toxicity. There's blood work that can be done to check for antibodies for Lyme, Bartonella, and other co-infections, as well as antibodies to particular viruses. There's also stool testing that can be done to check for parasites. 
And then obviously treatment would be to address the factors that are seeming to be contributing. And this can involve removing toxic exposure, enhancing the body's ability to remove toxins. It can involve dietary changes to lower the amount of toxins one may be getting from their gastrointestinal tract, from things like yeast or mold. It can be medications to address issues like mold or Bartonella or Lyme. It may be therapies that address the vagus nerve or that address the compliance of the skull. The give of the skull can be affected when someone has head trauma. And we don't appreciate that there actually is some or should be some give to the skull. And when there's not, that can affect the lower part of the brain stem and what we call the cranial nerves. And one of the cranial nerves is the vagus nerve. And as I mentioned, it can also be very much a part of the treatment and usually is addressing sources of emotional stress, early childhood adversity, and trauma. And it's worth pointing out here that we're never free from inflammation and toxicity. And when people start to deal with health issues, a threshold has been reached where they start to have symptoms. And very often those symptoms will be brain-related symptoms as the brain is a good barometer of toxicity and inflammation. So the goal of treatment is to lower toxicity and inflammation enough so that the body and brain can get back into balance. And then obviously to prevent uh, further toxicity and further inflammation. So in closing, I would just like to comment on my own personal experience with this as I have had episodes of what I would call mast cell activation. So this would be episodes of acute inflammation and in my case it was due to mold toxicity. And during these episodes, though I was not suicidal, I did have distinct feelings of doom and a feeling that what I hear so often from people that I see when they say, I don't want to die, I just don't want to live like this anymore. So I had the fortune of knowing that this was a symptom of inflammation, and for me, these thoughts were occurring with other symptoms, such as headache and nausea, which are also mast cell symptoms. But again, not everyone has associated physical symptoms. If you are struggling with suicidal thoughts, I would encourage you to call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which is available 24 hours a day at one 800 273-8255. I do hope this podcast was helpful. At this point in my career, I dedicate half of my work to education and sharing information because there are so many people out there suffering and so few people who are aware of the emerging research into the root causes of brain-related symptoms. So know that when you like, comment, share, review, or engage with this podcast or my Facebook or Instagram posts that you're helping me get this information out into the world. I'm always happy to receive questions and can be reached through my website, CourtneySnyderMD.com. And on my website, I have more detailed information into root causes of brain-related symptoms. The most recent blog post is on brain inflammation and strategies to calm things down. I'll also be linking the scientific research that I cited in the description below the podcast.